0: This is Client Conversations,
1: a podcast from Charles Russell Speechleys.
2: Hello, and welcome to Client Conversations. My name is Simon Ridpath. I'm managing partner at Charles Russell Speechleys, an international law firm with a focus on private capital at the intersection of personal, family and business. And today I'm here with Graham Kleiner, partner and one of our private capital specialists. Graham heads the firm's private wealth disputes team and he advises trustees, executors and beneficiaries in relation to a broad range of disputes. He practises in both domestic and international trust and succession disputes and recent cases have involved parties located in multiple onshore and offshore jurisdictions around the world. Graham, welcome. Thank you, Simon. I'm delighted to start this new series with a very special guest and client, especially as we are recording the podcast in their hometown. This is the second series of our Client Conversation podcasts, where in each episode, we bring you an informative and entertaining look at our clients' views of the world of private capital. Their lived experiences, including stories of successes and challenges, provide a wealth of insights that we can all learn from. To listen to previous Client Conversation episodes, please visit the Charles Russell Speechley's website. You can also find our podcasts on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify this series will be mixing it up slightly whereby we'll be inviting other lawyers from around the firm to invite their clients and share their experiences together so you can hear more from our brilliant colleagues and our diverse range of clients private capital is what drives the world's economy whether it's high net worth individuals their families their businesses their investment and the relationships and passion that they bring to those enables innovation and change to a wide variety of industries across the globe. Graham, before we introduce today's guests, I'd like to get some thoughts from you. Um, private capital and the world of sport, and our guest today is a sports person, is now a big business, but it's also a passion play. Is that a new theme?
1: I don't think it's a new thing. I think it's, it's been around for a long time. But certainly in the last year or so, you're seeing more sort of private equity investment into sports clubs. We're seeing sovereign wealth going into sports clubs. So we're seeing a lot more interest between business and sport, which is actually changing the very nature of the sport that we've got. So we've got sort of huge sums going into football clubs and we've got rules that sort of clash with the amount of money that's going in, which is causing some issues.
2: And sports people are influencers now beyond the sports for which they became famous. So you've got people such as Mary Earps and Marcus Rashford using their fame as sports people to effectively influence social change or persuade big businesses to adapt the way that they're approaching their markets.
1: I think that's right. And you're also seeing people from the film world, such as Ryan Reynolds, going into places like Wrexham and making a difference there. And this has all been in the last year when we've seen David Beckham invest heavily in American sports. What also I think you're seeing is media. You can hardly turn on a television or go anywhere without seeing some sports, some uh, across the world um, almost every night so it's it's definitely an evolving picture so you're seeing the, the the interaction between sports people investors and the sports that they that they play or they used to play
2: and you're hearing sport described as entertainment now and i guess it's always been entertaining if done well but it's now being packaged as a product really and of course you've got media uh, as as a permanent reach and many sports stars today have media training or engaged in media platforms. It, it, they're expected to be able to engage uh, with the whole world, whether it's through social media or otherwise.
1: Well, I, you know, you can see now that you've got podcasts with people like Gary Lineker owning a production company, not only doing sport but history, news affairs. It's a complete clash of, of everything together, and they are certainly um, colliding with each other in terms of what's happening in the world at the moment well
2: talking about podcasts obviously we're on one today but it gives me an opportunity to segue into our guest today who is not gary lineker but uh it is someone who uh shares a podcast platform with gary and micah richards one of the uk's most listened to podcasts our guest today is none other than newcastle's greatest sportsman alan shearer
0: Thank you. That was a nice welcome. You can carry on we talking. that. Well, I enjoyed that. <laughs> I,
2: I, I will do. I will do. So, uh, Alan, for those who don't know of him, and I can't imagine there's many who don't, um, played his entire career at the top level of English football. Widely regarded as one of the best strikers of all time and one of the greatest players in Premier League history, Alan remains the Premier League's record goalscorer with the mark of 260 goals. On the 6th of December 2000, Alan was bestowed with the honorary freedom of the city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, with the citation in recognition of his role as captain of Newcastle United Football Club and as a former captain of England, which have enhanced the reputation of the city. Alan was also appointed OBE and CBE in 2001 and 2016, respectively, um, for his charitable services to the community in North East England. He's become a television pundit for the BBC, Journalist for the athletic and a number of other media outlets and since 2012 Alan created the Alan Shearer Foundation which was set up to directly support the Alan Shearer Centre in Newcastle a highly specialist disability respite residential and social provision for people with complex disabilities And acute sensory impairments so Alan thank you again for your time today and thank you for welcoming us to Newcastle before we kick off what have we missed with that distinguished history I'm always intrigued when we meet clients such as yourself with such a long list of achievements and accolades Um, which of those elements of your life do you reflect upon as being most critical to what you've achieved and which drive your life and ambitions as you look forward
0: well, normally what gets added in there is played in two FA Cup finals and lost. <laughs> Particularly when I'm sat next to Lineker on the, on the BBC doing the FA Cup games.
2: Um, We're only positive here, Alan. That only is positive. True. Yeah.
0: No, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely proud of what happened in my career. I was a kid who was brought up here in Newcastle. Um, I left here at 15 to go and try and chase my dream. And being an apprentice on a YTS scheme at uh, at Southampton, um, I remember pulling out the train station as that fifteen-year-old, when my mum and dad were on the side of the uh, the, the station, looking at my mum and her crying, thinking her little boy's about to leave at fifteen. And 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 I I always remember thinking when my kids got to fifteen, how on earth did my parents let me leave at such a young age? But um, it was the best thing I ever did because. Um, I had to grow up and grow up quickly and I learned my trade and um, I was in a really, really tough dressing room Um, and it was great for me and I had five or six great years down at Southampton Um, and that was probably the best thing I ever did, as I said, because um, I was about two months before leaving school. I was just getting in with some, with some bad lads. I think who were maybe trying to lead me down a different path. and I knew I was half decent at football, but uh, I, I really got a taste for it. And I wasn't the best player when I when we all came together down in Southampton, I was by, by, not by any means. I mean, if there was 20 of us who were there, I was, I don't know, maybe 15 or 16 on the list of, of being the best. But what I did better than anyone else was I worked harder than anyone else. And I realised that if I did that, I'd have a much better chance of being successful. And That's what got me through. And it was my parents that gave me that work ethic because my dad... Got up every morning at six o'clock and had to clock into the factory and clock out and came back at six o'clock in the evening and had his tea on the table off my mum, all made for him. And that was how I got my work ethic. And so if I, if I wasn't going to be a footballer, then it wasn't going to be for the one to try and, or working hard. So
2: that's what got me through. Thank you. Um, so you've talked about work ethic. What other personal qualities drove you to success as a footballer?
0: Um, I I soon realised that the feeling of scoring a goal in front of thousands of people, that whatever I did in my life was never going to better that. And once I did it um, once, which I did, I did it on my, my debut as a 17-year-old. I was lucky enough to score a hat-trick against Arsenal at the Dell. Um, and I got that feeling, I'd thought, bloody hell I love that feeling and I want that feeling every single week because I'm 53 years of age and I've yet to find a better feeling yeah. and um, uh, it's just it is just incredible um, and the more I did it the more I wanted to do it and the harder I worked at doing it um, that's what drove me on that's what I worked every single day for was to put the ball on the back of the net
2: and you were very good at it
0: I was all right at it yeah um I might have been I might have had slightly more if I hadn't had three serious injuries that kept me out for about 3 years but um, yeah I was I was a lucky boy I was I, I lived my dream uh, to be a I mean to be paid I mean can you imagine to be paid to play football I mean it doesn't get any better than Graham that, and well. I can only imagine <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> I would have played football on a Saturday and a Sunday for free um, for a Sunday league team or whatever it was, uh, because I just loved playing football and loved scoring goals. But to get paid to play football and now to get paid to talk about football, um, I'm one hell of a lucky lad. Yeah,
2: There were influences in your life, your mum and dad you've already talked about, and you talked about <coughs> a tough first dressing room down at Southampton. Yeah. Um, who would you say now, with hindsight, were the biggest influences on your football career? And that can be coaches, players, owners. Well, anyone.
0: I uh, I had a, an old guy who sadly is no longer with us. A guy called Jack Hickson who spotted me um, as a twelve year old, I think, um, playing for Newcastle Boys and Walls End Boys Club, which is a, a Sunday football club up here. And some being some great players through that boys' club: um, Peter Beardsley, Steve Bruce, Michael Carrick. To name but a few. Um, and he went up to my parents whilst I was playing and said, um, I'm the scout of Southampton. I would like to invite your son for a trial. And typical of my mum and dad, they sort of said, Well, what are you asking us for? Go and ask him, um, which he did. And the rest, I suppose, is, is history. I went on the trial, got signed as a schoolboy, which he did then then was lucky enough to be offered an apprenticeship which i've mentioned when i I went at 15. Um, but i kept in touch with him and i spoke to him three or four times a week Um, i spoke to him about advice on my first professional contract because obviously i didn't have any my parents didn't have a clue what uh, what was right and what was wrong and should i sign the contract what was in there and so i was in the world of unknown really and um it was it was him that gave me the advice it was him that Wrote a letter for me to to, to Umbro when I was um, I did I didn't have a boot contract, um, so um, yeah, it was he he was a huge influence on uh, on me and my career and my life, obviously, as long with uh, with my parents.
2: How big a part did emotion, uh, love for the game? You've talked about the euphoria of scoring a goal, and obviously, there's that trademark celebration that I still see kids that I coach now doing. You were a clinical goal scorer scored all kinds of different kinds of goals, but was emotion and love of the game a critical part to playing at the top level throughout? And has it changed since you become an analyst, a pundit, and stepped away from playing?
0: Um, no, my, my love and my passion for the game came when, basically, as soon as I could walk, my dad... and I, I mean, I know I've lived in different parts of the country. I lived in Southampton. I lived in um, Formby, Southport, Merseyside when I played for Blackburn. So but i think it's slightly different here in newcastle because of the passion my dad chucked a ball at my feet when as soon as i could walk and give me that black and white shirt i guess very much like his dad did to him so and from from that very moment it was it was always always going to be football for me um I loved going to watch my hero, Kevin Keegan at St. James's Park. I mean, I stood outside the Gallagher at at nine o'clock in the morning for a three o'clock kickoff for his debut, like many thousands of others did. And I saw him score on his debut. And then I thought, "Mm, I I, I like that. I want a bit of that. So I've been lucky, you know, because I see why so many footballers get into trouble when they when they retire, because they go chasing the drug. And I I sort of left one dressing room and went into another one in terms of the BBC with Hanson and Lineker and Lee Dixon and all these guys that we work with. Um, But you miss that from a a 15 years of age to 36. All I've ever known is going into a dressing room, having a structured time, what time to train, what to eat, what to wear. And then all of a sudden at 36, that stops and it's... I mean, we then we didn't get any advice how to, to handle that. And then I see so many people retire and finish, and then they go chasing it. They go ch- ch- chasing that feeling again. And the sooner you realise that feeling is not there, and you're never going to get that. Wherever you go, whatever you do, it's not there. Um, but I was kind of lucky because, as I said, I went into the... And I still get, although it's nothing like scoring a goal, I still get the... The little nervy feeling, the little butterflies when it's live TV, because yes. you can't make a mistake. You have to get all your words right. And if you don't, then you might get sacked. So um, that gives you that little bit of that little bit of butterflies, a little bit of excitement on
1: keeps you what, on the edge. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think that's really important to have that.
1: How difficult was the the change from playing football to the media? Yeah, it was it was really
0: tough. Um, because that's, that's that one of the one of the things that I mentioned is you get I mean everything is done for you I mean more so now in today's game than it was 20 years ago 18 years ago whatever it was when I retired um, literally everything's done for you and then all of a sudden you're in the big wild world at 36 whereas normal people would get that it's in their early 20s I guess but it's it's really important to keep on going and keep on working and be forced out of bed in the morning to do something. Um, and luckily, um, I've gone, as I said, from, from the media, from the football world to the media world. But I, I always felt that I was going to be a manager. And I went into it, into the media world, thinking I can't really say much because I'm going to look a right fool here because one day I'm going to be a manager and I, and I, I, I don't want crit- to be critical or over-analytical. So I didn't really work at it in the media side for the first few years. But once I realised that management wasn't gonna happen. I mean I had I dipped my toes in for eight games at Newcastle and I loved it. And I still thought then for maybe a year or so after that that I was gonna be a manager. But then the longer I was out of the game the, the more I realised it's not gonna it's not gonna happen management. And then I sort of knuckled down and got stuck into the media side of things and then I could be more critical and
1: analytical. Did you get any help with that or what did you do all that by yourself?
0: Um No, I was never, I mean, I went into the media side of things. um, No one really gave me the help that I I thought. I mean, I was just sort of chucked into it. Um, In 2006, it was, when I I retired, I did a couple of bits for Sky. I did the co-coms for the England game for the last couple of years of my career and then went straight into the 2000 World Cup, 2006 World Cup in Germany. Um, and that was it. That was me, the start of the media world. And not really. There wasn't any real guidance given to me uh, at all when I started. No. So it was it was a difficult
1: transition. Yeah,
0: it was. I, rem- I remember getting criticised. I never really said anything, and never. Re- I always sort of sat on the fence, but that that was more on purpose because I always felt I was going to go back into the game.
2: And and I've always wondered: is it was it challenging when you first shifted? Because these guys you played against, played yeah, with. that's right, yeah. Um, did that feel odd or did you just say it's a different job now? Different yeah, job.
0: because, I mean, but I always, I always worked on the, on the theory, I suppose, that it, I never minded people when I was playing, criticising me, so long as it wasn't personal. Because, you know, as soon as you come off a pitch as a player, you don't need anyone to tell you whether you've had a good game or a bad game. You look in the mirror and think, yeah, I was good to do, I was crap to do or I was you know that yourself so if someone else said it, it didn't really bother me but then it, it sort of I thought well i had the attitude well if you're going to criticize me which inevitable you have to be at times more so now because of how many games are on television that all right i'll show you i'll get back I'll, I'll let me get back on the horse or let me get back on the pitch and and i'll i'll prove to you and that i always used it as a as a way of of trying to better myself um but then when you finish, you're still friendly with a lot of the players. And then I found myself on match of the day thinking, oh, God, I, I, I don't really want to say anything against him. He's my mate. <laughs> so, yeah, it is, it is tough, but there's a, there's a fine balance. But And I never, ever get personal um, in, in doing what I do now. I think it, I can be critical and do all the things that you have to do, but I, you should never get personal.
1: So I mean one of the one of the things we're, we've been looking at is sort of technological changes mm. nothing more than in the Premier League these days I mean do you think it's the technology that we've now got has improved the game in any way or no not yet
0: not how they told us it was going to be um, I mean I, I remember sitting down with the guys and going through everything in terms of VR and how it's going to work and how it's not going to work and the one thing and i that i always remember them saying was well we're not we're only here for the howlers it's for the absolute clear and obvious and i straight away i said well what's clear and obvious to you might not be clear and obvious to me so that terminology is rubbish you need to get rid of it um they haven't <laughs> which is causing its own problems so and they said they're not gonna re-referee the games, which they are. Um, so at the minute, no, I don't I don't think it is improving the game. Would I get rid of it? No, I wouldn't. I would try my very best to involve different people because I think it's a I think sitting in a studio and working or looking at a VR and working at the things that you have to work to get to the correct angles is a different skill set to actually being a referee on a football pitch. And I think the referees are worse for the system because they're under that much pressure and they also think, well, okay, if there's a doubt in their mind, they probably won't do it because they'll think they'll have the fallback of the, of the video. Um, and, I, and it's taken far, far too long to get to so many decisions. And also, maybe the most important thing, because I've experienced it in the stadium as a fan and it can't be right that fans are the last to find out and haven't got a clue what's going on whereas the people who are sat at home are looking at the screen and the monitor and they've been shown replays and yet you haven't got a clue what's happening in the stadium so I do think to improve it the the they need or we need as fans to hear what's been said and to certain to be f- to be far more informed in the in the stadium of how they're going to get to that decision.
1: I mean, the Women's World Cup—they announced what they were thinking. Yeah. We haven't even got to that point yet.
0: No, I know. I, it, and and for whatever reason, um, I mean, whether the technology is not there because—and I always hear the argument—well, it works well in different in other sports, i.e., rugby or cricket, and it does. I mean, we we can sit and hear everything the the ref or the mic'd up guys are, are speaking to each other, and there's only one guy speaking to the referee, which I think is really important as well. Whereas sometimes in your, in, when we we listen back to the to the VAR, it seems as if it's so chaotic when so many voices speaking, and I'm, I think well just shut up please and let one person speak to the to the referee. So. There's plenty of improvements that need to be made, but I do I am aware that they they are they are desperate the Premier League to to get to a point where it can be trusted, and they are working so hard with with the football clubs, and it's I think it's only a matter of time before the semi automated offside system comes in. I think they voted against it for this season, but I, I would be amazed if it's not voted in
1: for next season. And I heard you when you were talking about the the penalty decision um, in Paris. The, the consequences from a business sense for Newcastle United um, I mean it, that's a sort of change in in the way that people think about things that that decision has cost us so many million
0: absolutely yeah because I mean it's 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 as we sit here um, one day before Newcastle's final Champions League game against AC Milan it's not in their hands so If they were to win against AC Milan, then it might not be enough, which then you're right, the consequences of that, because if PSG go to Dortmund and win, because of that result, or because of that huge error in Paris, which everyone acknowledged, even UEFA acknowledged, because they kicked the referee off this round of games and his VAR assistant, because it, it just went against everything that the law says. And they even had a meeting seven or eight months ago to to go through that. If it hits any other part of your body, then goes onto your arm, then it shouldn't be a penalty. Um, so the consequences, yeah, in terms of finance, because Newcastle need to generate money because of the, financial fair play or the profitable and sustainability whatever they call it now um they need that going forward they need the money going forward so they can invest in in more players so yeah the consequences of that could be huge
1: so technology affects the business model is what well saying.
0: without without doubt i mean there is a saying that it certainly was before var and 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 maybe now is is that oh everything sort of evens itself out over the over the season but i'm yeah, it was it was it was it was brought in for me just for the absolute howlers, and that's what it should have been. But it's not doing that. But decision making from referees and VAR now have have a huge have huge consequences on football clubs, whether that's whatever position they finish in in the league, because it's there are there's there's millions in between finishing fifth or sixth to eighth or ninth or even been getting relegated to these clubs it's it means so much now yeah
2: and it's it's interesting that you i mean you mentioned law um we love rules and regulations and one of the things that's interesting as a football fan but also as a lawyer you can see that since var has come in there's constant need to review the rules the laws of the game and you can see that they're drafted in a way that make no common sense i mean who could define uh, arm in an unnatural position. I mean, is there a definition of unnatural position? But you you sort of see rule makers, if you like, drafting rules of the game and referees then trying to interpret it. But everyone interprets stuff slightly differently.
0: I, I don't think it should be as complicated and as difficult as it is to, to understand what is a handball and what is not. But you're absolutely right. When you're talking about proximity, natural, unnatural, the speed of the ball coming. I mean, it's... It's impossible for me,
2: to regulate, isn't
0: it? it? Yeah, it's. It's. I mean, it's. It should just boil down to the referee's
2: opinion. Has that been a deliberate handball or not? And and the consequences now, as you you alluded to, around the sheer m- amount of money involved over these decisions. Do you think that VAR is now looking for perfection in an imp- One of the beauties of football and most sports yeah. is the unpredictability. The 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 fact that stuff does go wrong yeah. or you can't predict it, they're almost trying to get perfection. Yeah, the, the, the sums of
0: money we're talking about, I mean, I think I'm right in saying the, t- the new TV deal was something like £6.8 billion, pounds, which when I started, or when the Premier League started, I should I say, back in 1992, when I mean, you look at the stadiums and the pitches and where football was then, yeah. to what it is now it's like, I mean, it's just incredible. I remember when I left Blackburn in um, 1996. I was the world's most expensive player for 15 million pound, and I remember saying to my captain at the time, Tim Sherwood, "There's probably never going to be a better time to be a footballer than now." And that was <laughs> it, that was in 1996, <laughs> and I mean. Goodness me how uh, how wrong I was then. I mean from then to now it's I mean everything is just it's just gone crazy, hasn't it? I mean some of
1: the some of the salaries and some of the transfer fees now are just incredible. Eh? And the international media rights on the Premier League are incredible. I mean when they started off I think they just wrote it on a single piece of paper. Yeah. yeah. How it was to be divided up yeah, equally. Yeah, yeah. And then over the last sort of 3 or 4 years, particularly Manchester City have been Fronting up, saying this had to change. Yeah. I mean, I'm 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 really lucky. Um, I'm
0: an ambassador for the Premier League, and and I, I do a lot of sort of traveling, whether that's in America or India or wherever it be. And wherever I go on holiday, to whatever part of the world, I mean, I'm fascinated because all everyone wants to talk about, or anyone wants to talk about, is the Premier League. I mean, it's, it's this, it's this this huge. Juggernaut that just seems to be getting bigger and better and 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 unstoppable, um, and it's it is just amazing. I mean, you go to a far corner of India where you're in the middle of a field and and these guys have got nothing at all, yet they somehow find a radio or a television or they've got all the the, the kits on whether it's a Chelsea kit or a Man United kit or a Liverpool kit or a Newcastle. They somehow find a way to hear and listen and talk about premier league football it's it's astonishing
2: but it's part of that is that collective bargaining power that they have through tv deals Mm -hmm. because it's a competitive league i mean you yes there's a slight change in spain this year you've got a different team competing near the top but you've got stories like luton town for example traveling all the way through and whilst it's a tough season for them they have certain advantages around their ground and other things so the beauty of our product, I, I suspect, if you want to talk of it as a product, is yeah. the fact that they do try and keep that league competitive.
0: And I think that's, if you remember when um, when the bigger clubs in brackets would would had to tried to have the breakaway, yeah. that that's where they went spectacularly wrong, is that they tried to take the competitive edge away by saying there's no relegation or promotion, which obviously is clear nonsense. I mean, it might happen in America. Um, and then maybe you worried that because of there's so many American owners now in the uh, in the Premier League that the Premier League might go that way one day. But I don't see that happen because the outcry here in England is is that is what we love about it, and that's why it is so competitive. And we have so many teams that are competitive, even the teams that come up. We know that um, Liverpool can go to Kenilworth Road and struggle, like Man City have, like Arsenal have. Um, yet Newcastle can go to Sheffield United and score eight yeah. but on the, the we just we just we haven't got a clue from week to week what is going to happen and and I think that is why everyone loves the product the Premier League is that because it is so competitive I mean when you when you go around all around Europe and all around the world it's the envy of everyone because it's
1: it is so huge how grounded is it today in its local community though so one of the great things about football through the ages is how close the community is yeah. to the club I mean particularly Newcastle I th-
0: well, well certainly here in, in, in Newcastle because it's a one club city the ground is right in the middle of the city centre um, and as I said earlier I've sort of been around most of the country and I think certainly Newcastle maybe Liverpool and Glasgow are really unique in terms of you get the nans and granddads the mums and dads the brothers and sisters the aunts the uncles the, all the kids everyone wears a kit here in Newcastle I mean, if you walk around town, you can see so many people, thousands wearing the Newcastle United kit, and, and that's what it means to to this area. Is that if Newcastle win on a Saturday, then that means this area is having a great week. If they don't win, then it's everyone's depressed and it's disappointing, and that's what it that's what it means. And it is, I, I do think it is slightly different here in Newcastle to to so many other different places and around the country.
2: Um, just moving onto local community and, and passion and many of the other things we've talked about today. What drove the decision to use your foundation? So both the history of the foundation itself and, and why those particular causes to support those with complex disabilities and acute sensory impairment? Well,
0: when I had my uh, I was very kindly given a testimonial in 2006 for the 10 years that I spent with Newcastle and CELT came down and we had um, just under 53,000 people who paid really good money to watch the game and um, I mean testimonials were set up back in the day when people were stayed at their club for so long and their salaries weren't so good and that gave them the, the a, a chunk of money to go and buy a pub or set up a business or do whatever now of course once the big salaries came in once the Premier League um, had got underway then that that slightly changed so um, I thought it would have been wrong and remiss of me to, to, to actually take that money that was generated on that night and, I, and I'm I think we raised just under 1.7 million um, and I decided to give it away to uh, to charity. That was all well and good. The hard part was which charity because yeah. there is no such thing as a bad charity and, and of course I wanted ideas at who to give it to and there were so many great charities that I could have given it away. So in the end, we thought, well, why not? There was an old Derek building in uh, in, in just outside Newcastle so we thought, well, we can do it up, and we can we can give it a little bit back by setting up this activity centre, a respite home, um, and that got the vast majority of the decision and the vast majority of the of the money to uh, to go and set all that up. Um, so we did that, and then it's just grown and got bigger and bigger. And then in 2012, we thought, well, um, why not? see if we can make it as big as possible and keep on growing it and give it away for free. Um, so if you have a child or you have a, someone in your family or a friend that has uh, any form of disability that you can go and use the centre. We've got uh, over a dozen bedrooms there now. We've got a sensory room, um, ballroom, cinema rooms, um, swimming pool. Uh, but to give it away for free means we have to generate around about 250 grand a year. Um, which is challenging. So I thought, well, okay, I've got enough contacts. Um, how do we raise the money every year? So we have a golf day, but the big thing we do is, is that we, um, we ask a, an artist to come and perform for us in, uh, in, in Newcastle, and we can get three, about 330 people, which we do every year, into the Hilton Hotel. And since 2012, I mean, so many of the artists have been that generous. We had, we started off with Ronan Keating. We had uh, Olly Murs, Gary Barlow, Jess Glynn, Ed Sheeran, Lewis Capaldi, um, Mumford & Sons, Marcus Mumford came, uh, Craig David, Sam Fender last year. Um, it's like a glass, it It is, yeah. yeah for 330, wow. I don't know, wealthy people, if you like, who pay really good money for a table um, and we have an auction and we've got James Bay coming in f- this February to come and perform for us so that's where we sort of generate our money and we have uh, nine sponsors who, who also pay decent money as well but um, yeah I mean I, I said to you earlier about scoring a goal I mean the feeling and that to give back I mean it's better than I mean when I drive past it uh, on the road and I see the sign, the Alan Shearer Centre. And I, when I go up there with the family and to see what it is and what, how much people get out of it and the smiles, I mean, I'm really fortunate. I've got three kids and they're all happy and healthy and everything. So to go up there and, and see a child with a disability or a parent who gets great satisfaction because you can leave your child there for the night or the weekend because um, it, it is really, really tough. Um, and we, not everyone is as fortunate as we are. So, to give back um, gives me greater pleasure than any goal that I ever scored.
1: Absolutely brilliant. And so, I mean, in, in insofar as um, obstacle success, I mean, were there any challenges in setting this thing up and and making it the success it's become that you have to
0: overcome? Um. I mean, there's always challenges, whatever you do, whatever, you, there's always something in front of you that you think, how are we going to get past that? But you have to, as I said, because we're all passionate about making it work and keeping it successful. I mean, going into I mean, COVID was was terrible for, for because we, we ended up having, um, although we were still running the bedrooms and because kids are, kids are living there people are living there so it had to still continue but we had to shut the activity center down so there was no kids from the schools came in to use it there was no kids coming in from the weekend or daily so that was that was shut and of course well the whole world was shut wasn't it so we weren't able to uh, to raise any finance at that particular time the funds were sort of running uh, running dry um so that was, a, that was a huge challenge for us. But the bigger the challenge, the harder you've got to work to get around it. You can either sit there and think, oh, we're going to do this, or you can think, no, we're going to do it. And we've got some great people up uh, in the center who help run it, who make it a, a huge success. But it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be possible without the generosity of, of all these artists, given their time. They all come for free. We don't have to pay them. Um, they make their own way here. They make their own way back. Um, and it's, it's I, I just think it's really important to try and give a little bit back. And that's why I'm always conscious when if someone says to me, can you come and do me a favour? And do, I'm, I'm always open to say, well, yeah, because we're, we, we find ourselves in such a privileged position. As I said, being a footballer,
2: it's, it, I think it's great that you can give something back. What would you say was the biggest professional challenge in your life?
0: My injuries. Uh, I had three serious injuries. I ruptured my cruciate ligament ooh, six months after going to Blackburn. Um, I mean, I, I remember on it was uh, Boxing Day. I was on twenty-two goals, and things were flying for me. I was—I I felt as if I just couldn't miss. And then um, Leeds United at home, ball over the top. Went in a, into a challenge with the goalkeeper John Lukic at the time, and I just felt my knee go, and I thought, mm. and I managed to carry on for five or ten minutes, but it, it just wasn't right. And then I don't know, we eventually got to the diagnosis six weeks later that I'd ruptured my cruciate ligament, and um, I was going to be out for about seven months. And I thought, oh my God, this is. But anyway, I got I got through it and managed to, and it was always a big worry to think, am I going to come back as good as I was? Am I going to have my pace that I had? And I did. And all of those things were great. I came back after seven months. And then I managed to score goals as good as ever. Felt great. And then I got the move to Newcastle. And then 12 months after I got the move to Newcastle, pre-season game um, at Goodison Park. No one around me. Slipped. And then I just felt everything snap in my ankle. I mean, it was pointing the wrong way. Stretched off. Um, and then the doctor sort of said to me, we're going to have to do this, we're going to have to do that, we're going to have to operate. Um, and I guess the time scale is going to be around about seven or eight months. Oh my God, how do I how do I get around that? I did. I came back again, seven or eight months later. And then um, I think maybe when I was 29 or 30, um, I had another one. My left knee this time, my tendon in my left knee. And exactly the same thing again. I was going to be out for another six, or seven months. So those They're those nice long breaks, at least those were huge <laughs> challenges. And I had to sort of change my game uh, and adapt my game because certainly after my second one, and definitely after my third one, that I'd lost a yard of pace. So how do I, how do I continue to still score goals and still try and be one of the best despite me losing pace? So I had to adapt my game and change my game. Um, and was that deliberate? Yeah, it had to be. Uh, I had to retire from England because I couldn't continue to play for Newcastle and represent England, which was a—I mean—such a difficult decision. Bear in mind, I was England captain, yeah. but I just couldn't do both because of the the inju- injuries that I had. It wasn't possible. was that medical advice or was that? So they, they advice, the or was that- no, they. Uh, yeah, to I, took I took advice. I took advice as well, yeah and, yeah, and spoke to doctors and physios, etc. But the biggest advice I took was listening to my body, yeah. um, knowing that I couldn't perform at the standard that I wanted it to and needed to for both England and for Newcastle. I couldn't go and play in tournaments. Uh, despite me wanting to do that, I just had to have the foresight and thinking to, to get another five or six years out of my career at the highest level, and you mentioned it earlier, I was always fortunate enough to play at the highest level that something had to give and unfortunately I just had to be England so and it did I got another five or six years I played at the highest level I still scored goals I might not have been I'll leave that to other other people but I might not have been as prolific or as good as I was in my um, early and mid and uh, late 20s but I was still I was still really competitive and and still was able to score. Quite you, a few goals. You still scored some of the most memorable
2: goals during that period, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah, I
0: still, I right still scored real. a few. I still yeah. scored a few, but I, I wasn't mm-hmm. as prolific or I probably wasn't as good as I was when I signed for
1: Blackburn or when I signed for Newcastle. Um, and what does the future hold for you, do you think? I mean, in terms of, do you have an entrepreneurial spirit? Do you have lots of business interests? Um Yeah,
0: I've got a couple of business interests with, uh, with friends of mine, um, all my kids are out now. They've gone. Um, so we have a place in Winchester and up here in Newcastle. Um, so we spend a bit of time and in, in the Algarve. Um, so yeah, that's that's my life now is travelling around with the Premier League um, doing my TV bits. Um, I love my golf. So I try and get out particularly in the summer to try and play as, as much as I can. Um, and be a fan. Be a fan of, of Newcastle because we're they were, to where they are now is, I mean, it's just chalk and cheese. It's, 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 it's great to be able to go back to, to St. James's Park and hear the roar again and hear everyone being happy and everyone on the same page. And, and I, I, I mean, I've, I, my, my son was exactly the same as what I was. He loves Newcastle. He goes to a lot of the way games. He's been into the European games and certainly league games away and I I need to be alive when Newcastle wins something because uh, we, we had two FA Cup finals which ended up in defeat and the embarrassment of having to go on an open top bus in Newcastle after one of those defeats and seeing hundreds of thousands of people line the stadiums for us being losers. I want to see this city when we win something because... I we, the last time we won something was 1969. I wasn't born. So um, <laughs> that's that's what I want to see happen. Yeah.
2: Um, well, you've, you've already predicted the future, not necessarily as well when you said to Tim Sherwood, <laughs> there'll never be a better time know, to be a yeah, footballer. Yeah. Um, but we'll ask you to crystal ball gaze again. So by the next Winter World Cup, which is almost 10 years away, um, What's the big change you'd like to see in football? Do you know? I don't want to see too many changes in
0: football because sometimes you don't have to change. I know we have to evolve and we have to grow and and all of those things. But sometimes you don't have to touch things dr- drastically to make to continue to see them improve. Um, and I, I bloody hope VAR sorted out by then because <laughs> if it's not, then we're 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 all in trouble. Um, but no, I, I'm, not, I'm not a huge one for change because we've just spoken about the product and how great it is and how big it is and how successful it is. Yes, we continue to grow and, and improve and do all the things that you have to do, but we don't have to change that many things because it's right in front of our eyes. It works. It's, it's great. Football, since 1992, I know the Premier League, but football existed before 92 and was, was great then. And it, it, it just little minor changes here and there, but nothing too drastic.
2: Um, We always finish off these podcasts by asking some light-hearted questions. Okay, so I'll, I'll do the same for you, Alan, if I may. Um, what's the best or worst piece of advice you've ever received? Um, the best advice was from my old man:
0: was just work hard, and if don't get to twenty two or twenty three. And if you're not going to be a footballer, then don't get to that age and think, "What if?" And I should have done that differently. So I'm, I'm, I'm a stickler for time. I hate people being late. I've never been late in my life. I'm 53. My kids have got that attitude. I mean, they might not like it, but that's the way I brought them up. Um, but work harder than anyone else. That would. That's. That's what my dad said to me, and
2: it's. It sort of served me well. It's a great piece of advice so therefore what advice would you now give to your 20 year old self try and
0: enjoy it a little bit more don't sort of get stuck in the moment and don't maybe not be as stressed or as uptight or because everything sort of works out in the end you know it does and i mean i i know i've said it's it's a great living and you get a good salary for playing football, but it has its other sides to it as well in terms of the worry or the stress or everything else that else that, that goes with it. So I would try and tell myself to, to look at the bigger picture and just really enjoy it because, I mean, some, it is such a short career. If you get 15 years, you've been really lucky,
2: but you've got to go out and really enjoy it. And finally, who would play you in a film about your life? <laughs> <laughs> who
0: would play me who um, would
2: play you so who would you like to play Alan Shearer it wouldn't be Brad Pitt or anything like that would <laughs> it um, maybe it might be Ryan Reynolds now in terms yeah, of what he's, what he's yeah.
0: doing it. Um, and Rob McElhenney I think that's how you pronounce it I mean what what those guys are doing now have been hugely successful in one career and getting a taste of,
2: lo- of and loving football so maybe it's one of those two well, we know they're interested, so we'll <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll work on the rights for that, shall we? Um, thank you, Alan. Thank um, you, I really
0: enjoyed it. Thanks for coming.
2: The podcast today, I think, has, has really had several themes running through it. One is that undoubted work ethic that's driven so much of your career, the passion you have for scoring goals, and now for giving back and helping others through the foundation. That focus on getting through tough times like the injuries, um, being aware of how short a career it is and what you're really good at and that ability to evolve. Um, And the constant honest assessment has come through today. You've been incredibly honest with us in the answers to the questions, clearly passionate about the game. It comes through in your punditry and we've really enjoyed spending time with you today.
0: Thank you. Thanks for coming to Newcastle. I hope you've enjoyed it we have
2: thank you thank you graham um thank you alan and thank you for listening Uh, this is the first podcast of our second season and we hope you've enjoyed the client conversation as always to listen to the conversation podcast please visit the charles russell speechly's website and you can also find the podcast on podbean apple Podcasts, and spotify until the next one goodbye